Thank you, Miss Barbara. Um, I want to welcome you here this morning. I also want to welcome my wife. It's three Sundays. She hasn't been able to be here, and we have her and our new little son here, Isaiah, this morning. I'm thankful for for him, and um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to share God's Word with you today. I always love getting a chance to do it. It's been almost a whole year since I've been able to stand here and share God's Word with you, and so I pray that, that God ministers to your spirit uh, through this, and uh, if you are a visitor here today, that you will feel welcome and blessed and encouraged by the Word this morning. Well, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles open with me to First Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, and today we're going to talk about facing a fallen world before the face of God. Facing a fallen world before the face of God. In other words, as believers, we recognize that we live in a broken world, a sinful world, where evil seems to prevail all too often, and it appears to get darker day by day. It's sort of reminiscent of Israel's dark days in Judges 21-25 where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or in the New Testament, Book of Romans 132 Society, which says, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul is describing a society that is ripe for judgment, who not only understand the difference between right and wrong, and they know the consequences of their actions, but then they cheer on others in the same perverse God-rejecting sins. Although it's hardly necessary, a recent uh, snippet from the headlines will help stage our sermon this morning. You're familiar with Tim Tebow? Most of us here are, I'm sure. He was a Heisman Trophy winner and widely ridiculed or persecuted, should I say, for being open about his faith in Jesus Christ in the public square. Now, in more recent headlines, Michael Sam, who merely squeaked out a 249th draft pick in the NFL draft, is praised by our mainstream media and even the President of the United States for going public as the first openly gay football player and will also be the feature of Oprah Winfrey's documentary for this reason. Does this seem backwards to you? It should. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, the world is wrong side up, and we stand in position, as the early church did, to turn the world upside down. The apostle Peter lived in a day that was dominated by the Roman Empire, and we know that the Roman Empire was full of moral decay, as I noted by the Apostle Paul earlier in Romans one thirty-two, Prostitution, pedophilia, pornography, or homosexuality, and a high rate of divorce and murder were the norm. According to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, we find out Peter is writing to a group of believers in the Roman Empire in this decayed environment, who have been scattered, who have been widely persecuted for their faith in Christ and now are living in lands foreign to their home. They needed to be encouraged to stand firm in their faith in Christ and not let persecution and the the perverse nature of the culture cause them to cower from living distinctly holy lives in the midst of this world of depravity. See, we have brothers and sisters in Christ even today who just last week 
like Peter's day, were scattered from their own land. Maybe you saw the articles if you followed the news. Last Sunday, one headline read, The last Christian reportedly left Iraq, second largest city of Mosul, at 12 o'clock p.m. on Saturday. Assyrians have lived in Mosul for over 6,000 years, converting to Christianity over 2,000 years ago. Now, we know that that number is not correct. They didn't convert over 2,000 years ago, but near that time of the early church. Why have all of these Christians now vacated a land in which they lived since the early church brought the gospel to them? Well, another headline last Sunday read on Breitbart News, Christian Holocaust underway in Iraq. USA and world look on. Here's a quote from the article. When U.S. troops invaded Iraq in 2003, there were at least 1.5 million Christians in Iraq. Over the last 10 years, but significantly in the last few months, with the emergence of ISIS, that figure has dropped to about 400,000. Dr. Gorka explained that in the last 48 hours, ISIS, which is now called the Islamic State in Mosul, has painted the letter N for Nazarene on the houses of all the surviving Christians in the city. ISIS has basically given an ultimatum to all the Christians left. You can either flee, convert to Islam, or we will kill you. End of quote. You hear that? They painted the letter N for Nazarene on all the remaining Christians' homes. That's why in Acts 9, after giving consent to the death of Stephen, the Apostle Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute more believers in Christ when he encounters the Lord Jesus Christ, who then blinds him and asks him in Acts 9, 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, the root of Saul's hatred wasn't the believers in Damascus. It was Jesus. Jesus himself stated in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If, it persecutes you if, it, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In our passage this morning, Peter is addressing believers similar to our world. They lived in a world that was morally bankrupt. And there was persecution that was widespread, such as there is today. Living for Jesus and being holy is just not so easy for us when we've got the devil, we've got the world, and we've got our own flesh all waging war against us. So like our first century church with Peter and our scattered brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq, how does the believer in Valonia, Arkansas walk in holiness in a fallen world? Where do we look for encouragement and strength to help us when the world around us is falling apart and it appears that sin has its hold on us and we're losing the battle? How do you and I persevere in that same world? Well, first thing we want to note is this, that the believer must live in hope. The believer must live in hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that the first thing we need to do as we stand in the midst of a fallen world before the face of God is that we live in hope. This is not a hope that we wish for. This is not a hope that we hope we were right about. It's not something that we hope because we're unsure of. The believer's hope is in the real person of Jesus Christ who Paul says to Titus is our blessed hope. We have a hope that looks to the future. The church must live like a young couple counting down the days until their wedding. 
It's in him that we look and wait for with great anticipation and confidence. And according to Peter, we're supposed to prepare our hearts and our minds for the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says there, prepare your minds for action, meaning work on having a disciplined mind, a mind that's ready for Jesus. Shut down the mental foolishness. This word is prepare is a metaphor that we look up in the, the Greek lexicon that tells us that it's derived from the practice of the Orientals uh, who in order to be unimpeded from their movements were accustomed when starting a journey or engaging in any work, they would bind their long flowing garments up and wrap it with a belt so that they can move easily. You see, when you set your thoughts regularly upon the return of Christ, and you prepare your life for his return, it frees you from many of the worldly things that will trap your mind and run you off course. Peter goes on to say, to keep sober in spirit. When we think about keeping sober, we think about being free of intoxication. He says, keep sober in your spirit. In other words, he's saying, have a mind that's free from intoxication, a mind that is calm, steady, and self-controlled. You must guard your mind by being intoxicated by this world system and all the things that entice your flesh. We must learn to take every thought captive and place it under the lordship of Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, because we live in a fallen world, we must prepare our minds for the return of Christ. And also, the believer must live in holiness. The believer must live in holiness. Verse 14. As obedient children, okay, what he's going to say here, anything after this that is not true means that we're disobedient children. Okay, so as obedient children, here's what we must do. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, in your ignorance. Now, Paul says it another way in Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Now, conforming means to be fashioned according to the world. It's, it's kind of like being a lump of Play-Doh and, that is shaped by a little child into whatever his or her heart desires it to be. Now, if you're not actively pursuing holiness in your life, then you are being fashioned by this world in your thinking and your behavior. Peter then goes on to say in verse 15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves and also in all your behavior. You see, holy behavior is important in the midst of a crooked generation. Lost people around us need to see different. You hear me what I'm saying? Not weird, different. Peter goes on to say in chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now our Lord Jesus said it something like this in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see how all of this comes into play in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? The next question should be then, how does a believer be holy? Paul finishes Romans 12.2, which complements what we've read in 1 Peter and says, And do not be conformed to this world, but, just like Peter says, be holy yourselves and also also in all your behavior, Paul says, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Do not be fashioned into the molding of this world, but be transformed. Be different. Holy behavior is informed by holy thinking, and holy thinking is informed by one place. The believer must live in the word, verse 16. The believer must live in the word. All right, verse 16 here. Are you conformed by the world or by the word? Peter here rests his authority in the scripture when he says in verse 16, because it is written. Because it is written. How did Jesus resist, resist the seduction of the devil in the wilderness? Because it is written. He quoted the word. Are you conformed by the world or by the word? You see, while most of the church yawns at the book of Leviticus, Peter stands on the book. In Leviticus eleven forty four and 45, which says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And then in chapter 9, verse 2, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Finally, in chapter 20, verse 7, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. To know the God of the word, we've got to start with the word of God. Peter says, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written. He sets the mark. Where does this holy behavior come from? You shall be holy for I am holy. Peter tells us that God is holy as all of scripture has told us. This means that God is different. It means that God is other. He is separate. There is no one or nothing like him. When we describe God as love and God is just and God is merciful and God is gracious and God is patient and God is a judge, we are talking about holiness. You see, his love is holy. His justice is holy. His wrath is holy. This is why one of the great preachers of history, Jonathan Edwards, said, Holiness is the very beauty and loveliness of Jehovah himself. Tis the excellency of his excellencies. See, God is holy. It means he is separate. And there's no one or nothing like him. And because mankind has sinned against him, when we have fallen short of his glory, we are separated from him. And then any time God takes something that is separated from him and, and brings it unto himself and reconciles it to himself, it becomes holy because by nature he is holy. You see, just as God is holy, anything that's set apart unto himself is made holy. The temple is holy because it has been set apart and made different from all other buildings. The Sabbath is holy because it has been set apart unto God and it is different than all other days. The Christian is holy because the Christian has been set apart unto God and now is different among all people. Why? Because God is holy and has called us out and set us apart unto himself to be holy. You see, many people confuse moralism with holiness. That being holy is somehow defined by a list of things that we don't do. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't go to those kinds of movies. I don't look at those things on the internet. So therefore, that's holy. Yes, holiness is on display when the believer resists the fallen treasures or the fool's gold of this world. There are all kinds of lost people who strive to not have sex before marriage, and they don't have a lick of holiness. 
Yes, be holy in your behavior. But it's less about pursuing the behavior of holiness and more about pursuing the person of holiness. Holiness is best on display when you and I find our identity in the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ. Pursuing Jesus is pursuing holiness. And to pursue Him, we must go to the Word of Christ. We stand on the Word in this fallen world. And to do so is important. It is important for us to know the Bible. But we must not study the Bible just to merely know the Bible better. You see, there's a lot of lost people who can quote the Bible better than some of us. There's a lot of lost people who can do that. We study the Bible to know the God of the Bible better. As Warren Wiersbe speaks about it, he says, It's good to know the Word of God, but even better to know the God of the Word. We need to pursue holiness by living in the Word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 119.9 asks a question, then he answers his question. And he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man in the midst of this fallen world keep his way pure before the face of God? And the answer to his question is, by keeping it according to your word. We must live in the word. Next, as we face a world before the face of God, the believer must prepare for judgment. For judgment, verse 17. If you address, Peter says, as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. A day of judgment is coming. For the unbeliever, this is a day of darkness and terror. There's no changing course. There's no going back. There's no second chances. But Peter here is not speaking to the unbeliever. He's talking to the Christian. A day of judgment is coming for us believers. This day will not determine heaven or hell for you. Your sins have already been judged on the cross of Christ. By faith alone in Him. He bore your punishment. He bore the wrath of God on the cross in your place. This will be a day where your work on earth will be examined. You see, since you were saved, ask yourself, how well have I loved and served others? This will be judged. Ask yourself, since you were saved, how have you given God your life to serve Him? This will be judged. Since you were saved, how have you invested the resources that God has provided you to serve his purposes? This will be judged. Since you were saved, how have you shared the gospel that he has saved you by and entrusted to you? This will be judged. Rewards will be determined at the believer's day of judgment. And it's Peter's intention that this future time of judgment should direct our present way of living. He says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. When he says fear, Peter's not talking about to be afraid. We do not fear a future punishment. As I've mentioned, our sins have been punished on the cross. Peter's speaking of reverence. We are to live with reverence for God in the world, knowing that all of our works will be judged in the future. And Peter ends that point by saying, during the time of your stay on earth, which reminds us that this world is not our home. To the Christian suffering in the Middle East, this world is not his home. To the believer in Peter's day, watching society crumble around him, this world was not his home. We are in the world, but not of the world. 
The Bible says, Christians, that we are strangers, that we are aliens, that we are foreigners, that we are sojourners. Like Paul in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, the believer must remember God's love. The believer must remember God's love. Verses 18 through 21 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are not in this world, but in God. So first, we must remember what we were. Peter's showing us, remember what you were. First thing he says is, you were not redeemed. In other words, so you were redeemed. What does that say? Well, redemption involves paying a price. There were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire, and the early church were filled with slaves and former slaves. You see, a slave could purchase his own freedom from the right amount, but oftentimes it took somebody coming from the outside in who would pay the price with silver or gold, and then they would purchase the freedom of that individual. Titus 3.3, we were slaves to sin. And according to verses 14 and 18 today's passage, we were also redeemed from a life of ignorance and futility. That's who we were. But remember what Christ did. Peter says Christ redeemed us. He didn't purchase us with money. He spilled his precious blood for our sakes. The gift of sacrifice that Jesus gave us was not a plan that was thrown together at the last minute. No, God created us and knew from the very first day that he formed man from the dust of the earth that he would lay down his life for us to be free from sin. Revelation 13, 8 says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, meaning in in eternity past, it was already set in motion that Jesus would purchase a people for his own possession so that we could join the Apostle Paul in 11, Romans eleven thirty three, where he marvels over in the previous 11 chapters over the work that Christ has done. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable, unfathomable his ways. So Peter gives us several things to walk with here. To live holy in an unholy world involves these several things, living in hope of the second coming of Christ, living in holiness, being in the world, but not of the world, living in the word, knowing our holy God, preparing for future judgment, and remembering the depth of God's love for you and what he's done in Christ. You see, all of these points as I was putting this together reminded me a couple of weeks ago as I was teaching one of my daughters to ride her bicycle without training wheels, the hard thing to kind of get, your, get, get in their mind, which can be scary at the moment, is that you've got to go faster to get momentum. You've got to get momentum to balance. But if you stay idle, you will fall. The scary part is trying to get yourself going because you don't want to go fast, but when you go fast, you find you can learn to balance. But the second she would get real idle and try to balance, she would fall. Are you living idle at this moment? Christian, 
let me encourage you to take 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 21 as a starting point and build some momentum in your walk with Christ. Facing the world before the face of God comes from an old term given by Christian theologians called Coram Deo. I'm going to close this morning by reading you something from a theologian and author and, and a pastor, R.C. Sproul. And then I want to close with 1 John chapter 3. R.C. Sproul is just going to put a little bit more of a picture on what we're talking about as we live in this fallen world before God's presence. He says this, This phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. To be aware of the presence of God is also to be acutely aware of his sovereignty. The uniform experience of the saints is to recognize that if God is God, then he is indeed sovereign. When Saul was confronted by the refulgent glory of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, his immediate question was, who is it, Lord? He wasn't sure who was speaking to him, but he knew that whomever it was was certainly sovereign over him. Living under divine sovereignty involves more than a reluctant submission to sheer sovereignty that is motivated out of a fear of punishment. It involves recognizing that there is no higher goal than offering honor to God. Our lives are to be living sacrifices, oblations offered in a spirit of adoration and gratitude. To live all of life quorum Deo is to live a life of integrity. It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in the majesty of God. A fragmented life is a life of disintegration. It is marked by inconsistency, disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. The Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections of the religious and the non-religious has failed to grasp this big idea. The big idea is that all of life is religious or none of life is religious. To divide life between the religious and the non-religious is itself a sacrilege. This means that if a person fulfills his or her vocation as a steelmaker, attorney, or homemaker, quorum Deo, then that person is acting every bit as religiously as a soul-winning evangelist who fulfills his vocation. It means that David was as religious when he obeyed God's call to be a shepherd as he was when he was anointed with a special grace of kingship. It means that Jesus was every bit as religious when he worked in his father's carpenter, carpenter shop as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Integrity is found where men and women live their lives in a pattern of consistency. It is a pattern that functions the same basic way in church and out of church. It is a life that is open before God. It is a life in which all that is done is done as to the Lord. It is a life lived by principle, not expediency, by humility before God, not defiance. It is a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the word of God. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. That's the big idea. So says Sproul, next to this idea, our other goals and ambitions become mere trifles. We all live under the presence of God, under the authority of God, and are to do so in this fallen world to the glory of God. When you look around and you are dismayed by all that you see, yes, there is corruption in politics. Yes, terrorism is increasing. 
Yes, there are more wars and cold wars that are reforming. And yes, freedoms appear to be eroding. But be encouraged, Christian. Evil will not triumph. Jesus is coming, and there is coming a day when righteousness will rule and sin will be no more. And as Isaiah says, the government will rest on his shoulders. 1 John 3, 2 through 3, let me close. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Be holy, just as he is pure, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word this morning. It speaks to us in our scenario. It speaks to the suffering brother and sister in Christ in the Middle East. It speaks to us. It transcends time. It transcends culture. And we thank you, Lord, that today that we can take heart that this world is not all that there is. And that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Help us, Lord, to live holy in the midst of this broken world so that we can shine the light of Christ, so that they can taste and see how good you are. Lord, I pray today that you would help us, instruct us under your word to live, quorum Deo, to recognize that all of life is played out under your gaze. And that we would not ever think that there is a moment that we can escape. And that as believers, we don't, we don't fear. We are not motivated out of fear, but out of love because of what Christ has done for us. And so I pray that you would help us to pursue holiness in the face of Jesus to live it out in our behavior so that the world can see that there is a God who saves. And Lord, I pray for those who are in here today who do not know Jesus, who have not longed for holiness ever in their life, who have never counted the blood of Christ as precious. Lord, I pray today you might open their eyes, that you might give them repentance, that they would confess their sins to you. And receive forgiveness that only you can give so that they can receive eternal life. Now I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.